The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Good morning, everyone. Today's scripture reading is from Psalms 50. That's found on page 473 of your Bibles. Psalm 50, page 473. If you don't have a Bible, we ask that you take the one that you have in front of you as our gift to you. Psalm 50. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or to take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself." But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this, then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. These are the words of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, in this psalm, we have uh, you coming to visit your people in such a overwhelming way. And then I think of my words and how not overwhelming they are. And so I just pray that your spirit would be with us as we look at your word. And that uh, just as the psalm describes you in such an overwhelming way that your Holy Spirit would uh, just work in our hearts and our minds to see you and feel you in this way, to know you in this way. And that the, uh, the beautification that you want to take place through this psalm would happen in us. Lord, that this psalm would happen in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are continuing our series looking at some psalms through January. We've been saying that psalms are God hosting a community event for your heart. Uh, so last week we looked at a, a lament psalm, you remember. A lament is just pouring out your, your sorrow and your complaint to God. And so we were, I think, encouraged to see that you're actually allowed to do that. Um, and so we remember that the psalms have all these emotions and experiences in them, and for each one, God is saying to you, come to me like this when life is like that. Come to me in this way. So it's a God hosting this community event for us for every situation that life brings. So if last week was a psalm of lament, 
we pour out our, an ethical psalm, an ethical psalm. So obviously, right, ethical psalms are focused on, on how God's people are to live before him. So many psalms, as you read through them, you'll be seeing the importance of righteousness, um, obedience, justice, all these ways God wants us to live. And these are very valuable for us. Uh, what do you think? Why would that be important to have a God-inspired prayer about how God's people should live? A God-inspired prayer about how God's people should live. Well, first of all, it really helps us understand how to pray for ourselves. You read through a psalm and you see the kind of ethical life that God wants, and it's meant to be a time of examination, isn't it? As you pray it, am I, am I like this? Uh, do I love these things? Do I want these things? Am I pursuing these things? So it helps us pray that God would conform us into the kind of people he wants us to be. They also help us confront our own hypocrisy. Uh, is that important for the church? How many times have you ever done this? You invite somebody to church and they, pop, they, they say immediately, I will never go to church because of all the hypocrites. You ever, have you ever experienced that before? I've heard that so many times. And to be honest with you, if you're not a little bit of a hypocrite, you don't belong here. <laughs> No offense, and for most of you, none taken, right? That's why we're here. We know we, we have a problem. We're sinners who need a savior. But, uh, but nonetheless, hypocrisy should never be something that we're comfortable with, should it? Oh, no. Oh, no. And so we, we, want, to, uh, we want to let God come and talk to us in this way, to confront us in this way. So that this, song, this psalm is unique, the one we're looking at today, because God is speaking the entire time. So I guess we just have to ask before we get to it, is God allowed to confront you? For, for you sitting there, is he allowed to come and talk to you and be like, I'd like to make some adjustments? And, and will we listen? Um, so the Psalms help us confront our own hypocrisy. They also help us doubt our doubts. So sometimes people have the doubt, well, I can't believe Christianity is true and I can't believe the Bible's trustworthy because of all the hypocrites. I feel that a little bit. But what if the Bible constantly has in it confrontation of the hypocrites? You see what I'm saying? Evidently, hypocrites are expected in the Bible. Now, it's a problem. We're not comfortable with it, but it's normal. It's realistic. And so if you were to abandon the Bible or Christianity because of the hypocrites and then you read Psalm 50, what's God doing in Psalm 50? He's confronting this group of people that are in his covenant community and asking them to repent and bring them. He's confronting hypocrites, right? You see what I'm saying? So if, if you're like, oh, I can't believe this because the hypocrites, so the Bible's like, hey, are you acting like I don't know about this? You know? The Bible's realistic. It's realistic. The fourth thing they help us do, they help us check our actual theology, our actual theology. In this psalm, every person God is addressing is part of the covenant community. Everybody in the psalm that is being addressed are churchgoers. They've sang the songs, they've read the text, they can talk the language. They all have some sort of formal religious practice that they do. And yet God is going to, um, to confront how they're living. And it's just this reminder that we want to lessen the disconnect between our formal theology and our actual theology. Now, what do I mean by formal theology? Formal theology is what you would fill out like on a, on a survey or an essay in class. What do you believe about God and the Bible and the world and how you should live? Oh, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, you should love your neighbor, check, check, check. I believe it all the way. Your actual theology is sometimes different. I know that from experience. Where what you actually love and how you actually live does not fit what you claim. Good, there's three or four of us here. The rest of you need to go to counseling. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding, you don't have to raise your hand. But you, you see the disconnect here, right? And so it's, so it's so amazing how this group of people in Psalm 50 have such a powerful, formal theology. They're always believing it, saying it, doing it, and yet God is gonna spend the entire time 
pushing on their actual theology. What do you love? Who do you love? What do you do? So these ethical psalms are so important for that reason. One more thing, they're, one more reason they're important. Did you see what he called Zion in verse two? Out of Zion, and then what does he call him? The perfection of beauty. You read through this psalm, and through the second half of it, you see God confronting his people, and yet he also calls them perfectly beautiful. Is anyone confused? And he calls out formalists, we'll look at that. He calls out hypocrites, and yet it says, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Zion is like a, Zion is the, uh, Jerusalem would be the, the capital of Israel where the temple is, that's where you worship. And Zion is like this spiritualized idea that comes forth from that city of God's people uh, with God, he with them, them with him, uh, knowing him, loving him, being like him, and it's beautiful. You're beautiful when God is with his people. You're so beautiful, and yet God comes and says, out of, you know, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, and then there's this ugliness in this group of people who are meant to be beautiful. And so you really here see the motive of this psalm. It's these precious people who are meant to be beautiful and there's some ugliness and God wants to come and talk because he wants them to be beautified, moved forward. That's how it's gonna work today. I wanna go through the psalm in four parts. Number one, we're gonna see an awesome God with a beautiful goal. An awesome God with a beautiful goal. Then number two, I guess there's two parts to number two. We're gonna see two confrontations of our ugliness. Two confrontations of our ugliness. And then last, we're gonna look at God's beautifier, the power that moves into us to change us. First of all, an awesome God with a beautiful goal. You see the Psalm, uh, verse one, the mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. And then the next few verses are all about uh, what it would be like for God to visit. So look at verse three. Our God comes, he doesn't keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Kind of makes you imagine. What would it be like if God kind of manifested himself in the room with you and was here, not just by faith, but you felt it, you saw him. What would it be like to meet with him? And what would he wanna say to us you know, as we tremble there before him, what would he say in, in Psalm 50 is this event, he's come. And you see the three names in the first line. You see three names of God there? What's he called first? The mighty one. Hey, were you bored with God? Did you forget God? He's the mighty one. You remember, he's the one who saved Israel when they were just slaves from the most powerful nation on earth. And when he, when he brought them to his presence on the mountain, right, it was smoking and trembling. There was lightning. He's, he's the mighty one. There's no one like him. He's set apart from everything else. He's all powerful. He's holy. He's mighty. What does it mean when he comes to us? He's an awesome God. Number two, he's, uh, the Hebrew is Elohim. So you got Mighty one is the first name. God is the next name. Elohim, I think that reminds us that he's the creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's the one who made everything from stars to sand dollars. He's wise, he's truth, he's the authority, he's beautiful, he is love, he is justice, he's everything. And so when he comes to speak to us, he can actually summon creation as a witness to what he said and what he's done. It's like the whole world is watching as this supreme God comes to speak. Number three, he's called, what's the third one? The mighty one, God, and then he's called the Lord. You see how it's all capital letters in there? Uh, when you see Lord, all capital letters in the Old Testament, we're talking about the name Yahweh. Yahweh, and it means I am. And so you, you study and you learn and you think about this name and it's God's all sufficiency. He always is. 
He's eternal. He has no needs. He is everything in and of himself. He's all sufficient. He's the uncaused one, the perfect one, the beautiful one, Yahweh the Lord. So what's the author trying to do? The mighty one, God, the Lord. What should our posture be? Humility, look who's talking. Look who's talking. He's not only awesome God, he's our covenant God. He's our covenant God. Yahweh is the covenant name of God. What do, I, what do I say when, what do I mean when I say he's our covenant God? Well, first just look at some of the, the wording in verse three. Who comes? What's the first word in verse three? Our God comes. We're connected to him. He's connected to us. We're in relationship. Or in verse four, he calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge who? Who is he gonna judge? His people. Verse five, gather to me my faithful ones. And then what he says, who made a covenant with me. The awesome God of creation is our covenant God. We belong to him. Why is that important? Well, what is a covenant? What is that? It's a very serious commitment of two parties to one another that has both a relational and a legal aspect. A relational and a legal aspect. So what is the relational aspect? Well, it's love, it's enjoyment, it's communication, it's intimacy. It's joy, it's unity, right? The relational aspect. But there's a legal aspect as well, which is we are swearing to belong to one another under certain terms. I'll be this, you'll be that. The closest thing I think we can come to in human relationship is marriage. I made a covenant to be a certain thing and she made a covenant to be a certain thing and we promised it. We did it in front of witnesses. Uh, and we, we, there's even a legal aspect with the government so it is a relationship, but it's a legal and a, re and a uh, loving relationship. And that is the nature of our relationship with God. Uh, this is referring to Exodus 24 when God brought the people to himself and, and, and Moses said, God wants to be your God. And the people said, we wanna be his people. And so they had the terms, they had the law, right? His commandments. This is the nature of our relationship. He's our covenant God. And it's sealed by sacrifice. An animal died to seal that covenant. Blood was sprinkled to show the sobriety, the seriousness of this relationship with our covenant God. So when he speaks to us, it's not, it's not a God to strangers, right? It's a God with whom we have a connection, a commitment, a calling He's our covenant God, and what's his aim? Well, I've said it already, verse two. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. <laughs> what a line of faith in Psalm 50. What a line of faith. We see what is to come and what we hope for and what we have pieces of, but it's not there yet, is it? Are we the perfection of beauty, church? <laughs> Can I say my life is the perfection of beauty? No, no. But is that where God is taking us? Yes. He's going to beautify his people to where they love and do what he loves and what he does. And we're unified with him and we are like him. He's making us beautiful. And so you see, that's what he wants to do. He wants to come sometimes and confront our ugliness. So now we're gonna see him talk to two groups within the covenant community. Uh, we're gonna see they've each denied something about him. They've each denied something about him. We're gonna see they're each not keeping their covenant in some way. And so he's gonna graciously confront them and invite them to a different response. So let's look at that together. Let's look at the first group. I'm gonna call them the deal makers. The deal makers. What do I mean? Well, let's look. Verse seven, hear, hear, O my people, I will speak. O Israel, I'll testify against you. I'm God, your God. There's the covenant thing again, right? I'm your God. What does he rebuke them for? Well, first, what does he not rebuke them for? Verse eight, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. 
Your burnt offerings are continually before me. So if we're gonna contextualize, have these people quit going to church? No. Have they quit talking about scripture in one way or another? Nope. Do they have some sort of religious practice in them? Yeah, they do. God doesn't want it. Do you see in verse nine? I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. I don't want your sacrifice anymore. That's shocking that he would say that. Our God who gave us this sacrificial system and has called us to do it, he said, stop for a while. I don't want it. Why? Why? Look at 10 to 11 to 12, it kind of builds. Four, he says, every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. What does that make you think of already? He's saying to them, I don't want your bull because it's already my bull. Huh. Verse 11, I know all the birds of the hills and all the moves in the field is mine. In fact, it's not just, not just your, your cow is my cow. Everything is already mine. It's all mine already. 12, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you for the world and its fullness are mine. So there's an if. Does God get hungry, y'all? No. Does God have needs? No. If he had needs, would he come to you to meet them? <laughs> no. <laughs> Given that context, what is it that they're doing wrong? It's not their formal worship. It's their motivation in their formal worship. They think that when they obey or that when they try to do what's right or when they go to church or when they sing or when they give, they think they are giving God something he needs. They're making deals with him. I'll do this, and then if I do that for you, then you do this and you'll do that for me. It's almost like we're equals. I give God what he needs, and then he gives me what I need. What do you think? Is that Christianity? Is that you relate? Is that the way you relate to the biblical God? I've been so blessed to, to travel in some places, and you will see in some places in India an idol and a bowl of food with it right before the idol. It's still very real for millions and millions of people in a religious practice. A bowl of food for the idol. Uh, so you feed the idol. And why would you feed it? So that your car won't break down or so that your, your kids will be okay or so that it's like a trade, right? I, I need the God to help me. Maybe I can motivate him by giving him something and then he'll come and help me. It's deal making. It's deal making. So ask yourself, uh, does this sound just surreal like, or have you ever done this? Have you ever done this? Um, kind of in a contractual, I do this for you, God, then you do that for me. What happens in our hearts when we believe that? What happens in our hearts? Because it does get ugly, I think. God here is confronting ugliness. It does get ugly. Why is it so ugly to have a deal-making relationship with God? Well, number one, all of a sudden, you are worshiping a pretend God. A pretend God. If you're assuming that God has needs and can't make it without you and your obedience somehow, you're worshiping a pretend God, because what do we already know about Yahweh? Remember when Moses first meets Yahweh? Remember what happened? There was a bush. What happened to the bush? It was on fire. Now that in itself is not that strange. Have you all ever seen wood on fire before? Okay. That's not strange. What was strange about it? Do you remember? The fire wasn't burning the bush. What does a fire need to keep burning? Fuel. So what was this image showing you? What did this fire need? Nothing. It has no needs. Yahweh is self exists No needs. So I told you this group, when, they, when they're deal-making, they're kind of breaking the covenant. Here's why. They begin to think their God was just like the gods of the nations. He's not all-sufficient. He's not everything. Do you remember the first commandment? Exodus 20, verse 1. 
This is the covenant, right? This is the legal aspect of our relationship with God. Verse 20, 20 verse one, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. What's the next one? You shall have no other gods before me. I'm it, I'm everything. And you know, when we say no other gods, like in a syncretistic world, how many gods do you go to? I got a God over here for this, I got over there for that. I go to here, there, and everywhere to satisfy my needs. We do that a little bit too. I'll go to the God of the Bible for forgiveness, but I'll go to the God of the materialism or the pleasing what other people think or the to get all my other needs. And so the God of the Bible is, is on the list of one of the gods you go to for one thing you need. When God says, no other gods before me, he is saying, I am all you need every time for everything. I'm it, because I'm Yahweh. I have it all. But deal-making also leads to a massive self-centeredness that will either kill you with pride or with despair. First, how it kills you with pride. If you worship God in this way, and I think Christians do this all the time. If you worship God in this way, then you'll have the sense that he is in your debt and that he owes you. So God, I was faithful, right? I, I participated in church or I helped these people and I did all these things, which means what you owe me in return is coming. And then what happens? What happens when life doesn't go the way you'd hoped God, you let me down. You're breaking the deal. I gave you all this, you now owe me all that because we had a deal. This is different than lament, right? This is different because lament says, God, we, we're friends, I'm hurt, I don't understand why it's happening this way, but I'm trusting in you still, right? We saw that last week. No, deal-making is different than lament because it, it now, instead of God coming to judge us, we're standing over God going, Annie up. You didn't give what you said. And that is a very dangerous, very prideful place to be. You know, here I am. Uh, we'll rewrite the psalm now. Matt the mighty one, Matt the Lord, speaks and summons God. Who are you to whatever? <laughs> no thanks. It leads to pride. It also leads to pride, deal-making. It leads to pride towards others. Because if you feel like you're living faithfully and others are not, then how do you look at them now? Well, I'm doing it. Why aren't you? Getting a little, getting a little self-righteous there. It leads to pride. It also leads to despair because it's self-centered, okay? So maybe we switch it up a little bit. You're serving God. You're making deals with him. And then life doesn't go as you want. Instead of, of judging God, maybe you just condemn yourself and you say, oh, God hates me. None of my obedience was enough. None of what I did counted. And then you feel God has denied you. Do you see why it's ugly? A deal-making heart of worship towards God, it's ugly. So how then should we worship him? Well, look what he's gonna do. He's gonna remind them over and over again of who they already know he is. I'm Yahweh, I'm all sufficient. So how many of the cows are God's? Verse 10, all of them. How much, how much of the anything is God's already? All of it. Have you ever given anything to God that he didn't already enable? Ever? Ever? Have you ever given a gift to God that he did not already give to you? You know, imagine me giving you know, five bucks to my kid. And then later they're like, well, I'll give you five bucks if you, uh... I'm like, sorry, my five bucks, man. You've never given to God anything that he did not give to you. And you might say, well, what about my work ethic? I've worked hard to have what I have. Where'd you get your work ethic? Where'd you get all the opportunities that enabled you to have the education or the job or the, um, or the raise? Where'd you get all that? That, those are all gifts. Never given to God anything that was not already his. 
And then verse 12, it's funny, right? We've looked at it. God's like, say for the sake of conversation, I was hungry. I wouldn't go to you. (laughs) You cannot cook a meal I'm interested in eating. Verse 13, do I eat the flesh of bulls and drink the blood of goats? Do I need your obedience? And the resounding answer is what? No. Don't come to me making deals with your goodness, your obedience, your self-pity, your deserving. God doesn't want what we're selling when we're making deals with him. So how do you then come to an all-sufficient God? Because he does want you to come to him. He does. Come to him. How do you do so much? I love it. Look what he says. Offer to God a sacrifice of what? Thanksgiving. That changes everything. It changes everything. What is thanksgiving? It's, it's this thing that this special kind of happiness that happens in your heart when somebody generously gave you something. Do you, do you remember what it feels like to receive this great gift? It's humbling, right? Oh, you're amazed at the love and the generosity of this other person. And so God is giving. He's the giver all the time. As the all-sufficient one, he has no needs, but what does he love to do as the all-sufficient one? Give. He loves to give. He's generous. Come to me with a thankful heart. So when you serve God, is it, hey, God, I'm doing something you need? Or is it, hey, God, I'm offering something to you in love and gratitude that you have already given to me? I'm giving you what's yours. Thank you, Lord. Have you ever seen that uh, vision of the elders in Revelation? What are they always doing? Taking their crowns and throwing them at God's feet. And what are the crowns? It's a symbol of like the reward for how they lived. And why are they throwing it at his feet? You did this. God, you saved me. You changed my heart. You motivated me. You gave me your word. You gave me your church. You gave me the desire. You gave me the spirit. This whole crown, it's a gift that you gave me. You take it. And that God's so generous because he's like, oh, it looks good on you. (laughs) Wear my grace. Do you see verse 15? This is the Christian life. Call on me in the day of trouble. What do you do with an all-sufficient God? You admit your need. (laughs) I can't do it. And then you come to him, help, call on me in the day of trouble. And what does he say? Verse 15, I will deliver you and you will glorify me. Do you see the nature of this relationship? I come to God with need. I need you. I can't do this. I ask him for help. He makes a promise. I will deliver you. Then we act on that promise. And at the end of that, we glorify him, which goes, thank you, Lord, for giving me what I needed. What aspect of the Christian life could not be defined by that process? What aspect of your life could not be defined by this process? Call to him. He will deliver you, and you will glorify him. He gives, we praise. Even our obedience is he gives, we praise. Um, The way I wear this, I'm doing my best in this sermon to teach God's word. I can't do this, I feel that so powerfully. But I I pray for help. And then I go and act and trust that he's gonna do what he wants with his word. And then I thank him afterwards. How else could you do it? It's true for everything, every relationship. Call on him. Rely on him. Glorify him. The way to come to an all-sufficient God is a thankful dependence. And isn't that beautiful? Um, I wanna try to take this really practical just for a moment. I I hope it's helpful to you. I was reading a book uh, by John Piper about how to read the Bible, and I stumbled on this acronym thing he uses that sounds just like Psalm 50. 
It's this acronym he wants for how he serves God. And I think it's helpful, so maybe it's helpful for you. It's aptat. A-P-T-A-T. Aptat. You wanna try that on? Go ahead, go ahead, help me. Aptat, okay? It goes like this. Admit. Admit what? Admit you can't do it on your own. Admit your flesh isn't enough. Admit your skill's not good enough. Admit. P, pray. God, help me. Help me have the right motive. Help me have the right desire. Help me, help me, help me. T, trust. In his way, he will deliver. God never calls you to do something that he is not willing to enable you to do. Do you believe that? Trust, A-P-T, trust, and then A, act. Act now like he's gonna deliver. Do it. It's not just a let go and let God, I'm gonna sit here and wait for, wait for my miracle. No, act now based on the admit, the pray, the trust, act. And then as you get through it, as he gets you through it, whatever it is, whatever it is, even braces, Then you thank him. Thank you, God, for helping me. Thank you, God, for helping me. Do you see the beauty and the sweetness to this kind of a relationship with God rather than just deal-making? You are free to rely on all that he is. He's everything. You don't have to pretend like you have it all together. You don't have to look for all the resources you need in yourself. You go to him for what you need, and you find it there because he is the all-sufficient God. Maybe I'm staying here too long, but I'm gonna do it. First Corinthians 10, I want this to be so practical for you. Look at 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Paul writes amazing words here. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is what? Faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he also will provide the way of escape that you may be able to what? Endure it. And then it says, therefore, my beloved, flee from what? You see the connection with Psalm 50? If you, if you think you have to make deals with God or do it by yourself, huh. What's it mean to trust a sufficient God when you're tempted, okay? Anybody else in here tempted? You're gonna be tempted 12,000 times today, right? We are all constantly tempted, constantly. First thing to know about your temptation, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you, that is not what? See, when I'm about to sin, this is how I roll this, but my story's different, <laughs> right? Have you ever played that game with yourself? Your story's different. You didn't have a choice. Thank God for this wonderful and horrible text. <laughs> no temptation is overtaking you. That is not what? Common. But God is faithful. And he won't let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the, te the temptation, who? He will provide. He will offer what you need. He will provide the way of escape that you may be able to what? Endure it. And if you trust an all-sufficient God, that's a road you can walk. And when I don't walk it, right, because I, I still sin, I'm gonna sin today, I'm gonna sin tomorrow. When I don't walk it, why am I not walking it? What is my heart saying? You weren't enough. You weren't enough. Is God enough? That's how you worship a sufficient God. That's how God wants to beautify our hearts. Come to him with thankful hearts, admitting your need, relying on him, and knowing that he's there for you, that he loves you, that he is with you. All right, next. There's another confrontation. He starts talking to, I guess we could just call him the straight up, the, the hypocrites. He calls them the wicked in this passage. We can say hypocrites because they're still in the covenant community. You remember Psalm 1 from a couple weeks ago. What did we say about Psalm 1, verses 1 to 2? 
I told you that those two Psalms are like pillars for the rest of the Psalms. In Psalm 1, verses 1 to 2, the author writes, Blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in what? The law of the Lord. What kind of person is God building here when he builds his people? Well, we love, we love, we love his word. We love it. Look at what these people do, Psalm, 16, or Psalm 50, verses 16 to 17. To the wicked, God says... What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on, my, on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. So you see the, the horrible irony of what they're doing. Are they still going to synagogue? Are they still quoting or singing or reading or encountering the biblical ideas and truth somehow? Yes, they take it on their lips. And then what do they do with it after that? Whatever. Whatever, don't need it. And like the last group, they're breaking the covenant. Exodus 20, 14 to 17, you've heard of these. You shall what? Not commit adultery. You shall what? Not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. This was the, the legal aspect of their covenant with God. They said yes and amen, we want, we want in. You're our God, let's do it. And now you see in Psalm 50, verses 18 to 20, what have they done with these covenant promises? Verse 18, in Psalm 50, if you see a thief, you're what? You're pleased with him. Oh, that's cool. You keep company with adulterers. That doesn't mean you're graciously friends with people who've messed up before. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about you're in support of it. You're flirting with it. You think it's fine. No problem. No big deal. Verse 19, you give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's sons. So I don't know, what is it called when you quote the 10 commandments at service and then you break them all the next day? It's hypocrisy, okay? Isn't hypocrisy ugly? It's so ugly. It's so ugly. Uh, anytime a Christian leader publicly, right, burns a ship, and then you just feel the whole world, look at Christianity and you go, see? See? Oh, it's ugly. It's so painful. And it's, it's not just ugly for the name of God, it's ugly for others, because every one of these commands they are about your relationship with God, but they focus in on your relationship with other people. So when you, when you steal, what are you doing? You're hurting someone else, right? When you don't give what God has told you to give that person, you're taking from them something. They have, they have needs. Thieves steal, liars deceive, slanderers harm, adulterers betray. All of these deeds, who are they focusing on when we do them? Who do we have in our minds and our hearts when we commit these sins? Ourselves. Ourselves. Look at what God says in verse 21. These things you have done, and I have been silent. It's interesting, because, um, you know, life might, you know, some of us have collars you can put on the dog, and you push a little button, and he gets like a, <laughs> you know, if I had a collar on like that, and, you know, you're about to look at something you're not supposed to look at or say something you're not supposed to say, and I'm like, oh, right? And God's like, mm. don't, you be, don't you be doing that. Oh, might be different, but he's patient and he lets his word hang out there and we say it and we believe it and then we go out and disobey it and you look around right afterwards, you know? You ever made the joke, oh, lightning's gonna strike if you have whatever, you know, lightning's gonna strike and then you, you try it and oh, no, you know, you, uh, no lightning, and look what happens in our hearts. You thought I was one like yourself. 
He thought I was like you. What's he mean? You thought that because I didn't bring justice on your rebellion right away, that I didn't care about your sin. You thought it didn't really bother me that much, God is saying. You thought your excuse for it, that I found that viable. You thought it wasn't that big of a deal to break this covenant. And God is saying right here, it is. It is. Now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Look at verse 22. You know, in the modern Western world, we're probably not supposed to read Bible verses like this. Mark this then, you who forget God. What does it mean to forget God in this context? Is it to be an atheist? No. Is it to even quit going to church? No. Is it to think that he doesn't care about our sin? Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I, lest I what? I'll let you read it for me. Lest I tear you apart and there will be none to deliver. And if God's after you for justice, and think about it, is God being unfair here? We are the ones who broke the covenant and then in the context here, we're the ones hurting other people with this hypocrisy, right? We're hurting other people. We're tearing them apart. And God says, mark this when you forget me, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. And just think about it. If God is after you for justice, who are you gonna run to for help? You know, on the flip side, we love to, I love the verse, right? If God is for me, who can be against me? Praise God. Because I could have all the enemies in the world and if God is in my corner, bring it, right? But if God is against you, who can be for you? Mark this. But look, even, even now, this is an invitation, isn't it? What, is it? what does God want from these people? What does he want? If he wasn't loving, if he wasn't gracious, if he wasn't patient, he wouldn't even give this warning. He'd just tear them apart. But instead he says, you, the one who offers thanksgiving as a sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I'll show salvation. Come on home. Come on. I'll save you. Turn to me. Turn to me. What a psalm, huh? What a psalm. How do we do this? How do we do this? Maybe you're feeling ugly <laughs> as you read the psalm. Listen, I, you know, I'm the one teaching it, so let me just be first in line. I've committed all these sins, okay? I've, I've been a deal maker. Um, I haven't kept all of God's commandments. Are you kidding me? Uh, if we wanna read Jesus, talk about him, right? Like who in here is not an adulterer if you're a boy who's gone through puberty, <laughs> okay? If you, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed the seed of adultery, okay? Who in here hasn't stolen? And I'm not talking about when you were in high school and they dared you to steal a Mountain Dew or something. I'm talking about the Bible says you owe love to your neighbor. Has anybody not given it? Anybody in here not lied? You ever not kept a promise that you made? We're all sitting here under this, um, kind of flattened out, right, by this God, this holy God. And as we tie this into the storyline of the Bible, remember uh, Zion, the perfection of beauty. Let, let me show you some verses about Zion later on in the storyline. What happened to Jerusalem, to the people of Israel who had the covenants, who had his presence? Look at Lamentations 2.15. Lamentations 2.15, all who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called, what? The perfection of beauty. She's wrecked. The joy of all the earth, she's crumbling. Or Psalm 137.1. Here's a happy lament. By the waters of Babylon, where are they? 
Babylon, where's that? It's not Jerusalem. They've been destroyed by an enemy army and taken away as exiles by the waters of Babylon. There we sat down and wept when we remembered what? Zion, the perfection of beauty. It all just crumbled. They kept being deal makers. They kept being hypocrites. They were torn apart. They were. What do we do then? Then he came. Church, tell me, who is the one perfection of beauty? Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. Did he always love his father and delight in his father? Was he ever hypocritical in any way? Always kept every command in perfect beauty. And yet, oh, you think of that line, watch it, hypocrites, God says, lest I tear you to part and there be none to deliver. How is it that this one who's the perfection of beauty, not only that, the very son of God, he wears those names, creator, sufficient, the mighty one. How is it that he, the perfection of beauty, was then torn apart on a cross? He was torn apart. He took the curse of Psalm 50, treated as the worst ugliness. Why? So that you could receive his beauty, his beauty as a gift. And God raised him from the dead because he wasn't torn apart for his own hypocrisy, but he was torn apart for mine and for yours and for all those who trust themselves to him. Oh, and then you look back at Psalm 50, you remember verse five, where God says, gathered me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And you realize his death on the cross is the new sacrifice for the new covenant. He is the one that enables us to come and move from ugliness of our sin and rebellion into his beauty, into who he is. Look where you go when you turn to Jesus. Hebrews 12, 22. This is amazing. Look where you go. For those who trust Jesus, Hebrews 12, 22, you have come to where? Mount Zion. The perfection of beauty. You have come to the city of the living God, to God, the judge of all, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You've come to the ultimate meaning of that city, the beautiful place where God is with his people. God makes his ugly people like me beautiful. And you have a better blood what does it mean you have a better blood? A better word than the blood of Abel. You guys remember that story of Cain and Abel? Okay. Cain, Cain's, Cain's a bad guy, okay? And he murders his brother with a rock. Why? Because his brother's obedience was accepted by God and his rebellion wasn't. So it's really bitter and vindictive and gross. And Cain just kills him. And then God, when he comes to confront Cain, actually says, your brother's blood cries up to me from the ground. What does that mean? What does that mean? It means the injustice what you've done, uh, the injustice of what you have done is shouting at me, the judge of all the earth, to do something about it. Your sin is yelling at me to come and bring wrath. I hear its voice saying, if you're the judge of the earth, you need to bring the rain on this evil. Come on, judge it. How much does God hear that every day from this world? Judge it, bring it. He hears it, he holds back, he's patient, he waits. But Jesus' blood speaks a better word. Jesus' blood speaks a better word. What does Jesus' blood shout up at God, the judge? 
You imagine yourself standing next to Jesus and the bloodshed of all our sins and, and betrayal and covenant breaking, shouting up at God, but yet Jesus' blood flows up onto that and over that and through that, and it shouts a different word which says, you can't judge it. You have to forgive it because I paid for it. Do you hear his blood shouting for you? You can't judge it. You've got to forgive it because I paid for it. That's what his blood says. It spinks a better blood and it brings a better covenant. You know what's unique about the new covenant? What's the main kicker? In God's promises of the new covenant, he says, I'm gonna write my law. Where does he write it? On their hearts. And what does that mean? That when you truly trust and know Jesus, there will start something in you and grow something in you where you want to please him. You want to follow him. You want to turn away from rebelling him against him and turn to him. You want to, and even though you don't do it perfectly, and even though it's really painful to do it sometimes, you, you've got to, because he's changed your heart, and that's the beauty. Hearts changing to love God and love his ways, that's the beauty, and it's growing. Ephesians 5, what's Jesus gonna do with his lady, right? His la who's his lady? The church, how she looks sometimes. Not great. What's he doing with her? Is he throwing her out? Have mercy. He's making her holy and blameless before him. Philippians, what is what God gonna do? He who began this work in you, what's he gonna do? He's gonna complete it. You are going to be beautiful. You're gonna be glorified, beautiful. And the way it happens is you come to the Savior who died for you, who changes your heart and gives you total makeover. Maybe, maybe one day, well, I had to watch this while I was getting braces. Who, who's that couple and they change the houses, you know? And then, uh, so they, they go up in there and make a new kitchen and all that and they got the big, yeah, 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 yeah. They got the big poster up there and, you, and they go up and they're like, open your eyes. And it's the poster of the old house, you know? But then they move the poster, and you see the new house, and of course, what are they all doing? <laughs> okay. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if we got to see Fountain of Life glorified? What would you look like? What would you look like? If they moved the poster, and all of a sudden, there you were, totally who you were made to be in Christ, his grace having finished its work. I mean, Jesus says the righteous are gonna shine like the sun. You're gonna be beautiful. You already are already, right? It's in there for those who are in Christ. It's in there. It's growing. It's growing. Look at Colossians 2, 6 and 7. Therefore, if you, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so what? Walk in him, rooted and built up, where? In him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in. There it is. There it is. He's our sufficient Lord. He's our sufficient Lord. We cry out to him in trouble, and he delivers us. We get the joy of his salvation and we give him the praise. God wants to make us beautiful. He's done it, he's doing it in Christ. So let's delight in an all-sufficient God with thanksgiving, no deal-making, yeah? And let's cultivate this new heart we have in him where we long to keep his covenant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, make us beautiful. Make us beautiful. We thank you. We wear the robes of who he is and what he's done. Lord, we confess our deal-making, 
are law-breaking. There's nobody in here, Lord, that can stand before you on his own. Oh, we thank you for Jesus and the beauty, the beauty of his blood that he paid for our sins. Lord, may we just see that and have new thanksgiving and fresh hearts, God, fresh hearts to pursue you, to love you, to follow you, to delight in you, and just have these hearts and lives of thanksgiving as you give us everything we need. Uh, Do this work in us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening, and we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.fountainoflifefellowship.com.